Hello everyone and welcome back to Science Communication, looking deeper into health in Canada. My name is Shreya Singh and hosting with me is Abby, a fellow student at McMaster University. Today we will continue to talk about a pressing yet not widely known topic, perinatal mental health of Indigenous women. Through interviews with our knowledgeable guest speakers, we aim to help adults in Canada learn about current health issues and more importantly, generate discussions. In today's episode, we will look into the science and social issues behind this topic. Before we begin, I want to take this time to recognize that McMaster University is currently on the traditional territory shared between the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabe Nations, which was acknowledged in the dish with one spoon wampum belt. That wampum uses the symbolism of a dish to represent the territory and one spoon to represent that the people are to share the resources of the land and only take what they need. We have Dr. Ashley Johnson, a doctor of psychiatry here in Hamilton. Thank you for joining us today, uh, Dr. Johnson. You're welcome. Happy to be here. All right, so just quickly, would you mind um, introducing yourself to our audience and uh, briefly just talk about the experience and the work you've done in regard to Indigenous mental health? Okay. So my name is Dr. Ashley Johnson, and I identify as Mohawk Haudenosaunee. Uh, from Six Nations, and I have been working at Daidwadadesne, the Aboriginal Health Centre, for a few years now. I started as a resident there, and then when I became a staff psychiatrist, I, I kept on with that, and it's now my primary practice, and I also work at uh, St. Joe's for Psychiatry Emergency Services. Um, so I've been working there and um, doing that work. I work with the general adult population. Sometimes I see uh, adolescents as well, but there's, there's other psychiatrists there that are working on child psychiatry. So I'm predominantly seeing 18 and above, a range of ages, a range of, um, a range of different mental health issues, uh, males and females. Yeah. So how about the mental health of uh, Indigenous women that are in their uh, prenatal period? What kind of experience or work have you done with them? Yeah, so I'm, you know, I have some pregnant patients, um, but, you know, there are smaller, um, a smaller representation of the work that I do. Um, but certainly I have a lot of female patients and a lot of patients who are mothers and who have went through that process. And um, yeah, so, but they are, but I, and I do, I do, like I said, I do care for a few patients who are pregnant or who have recently had babies. Um, and uh, yeah, Shreya and I were talking about that as well, because I was wondering, well, the perinatal experience isn't one that I have this vast experience regarding, but certainly women's health uh, concerns and mental health issues are something that I am well aware of. Thank you. So um, we're just going to get right into it. But what are the most pre uh, prevalent mental health issues in mothers during the perinatal period? The mothers in general or Indigenous mothers or just... Um, mothers in general, but if there are specific Indigenous issues, we would love to hear about it. Yeah. So, you know, again, my perinatal like health experience isn't uh, as vast, but certainly just in, in general and in kind of training, I'm aware that a lot of women, in fact, many, sometimes up to 75% of women experience like baby blues after they have a baby. 
Um, and it's, you know, the, the stress of going through childbirth and the hormone changes and then, you know, these new responsibilities. And even if they're carrying anything inside regarding their self-concept in the past can affect whether or not they might be at risk of depression, but certainly postpartum depression as well, like about 10 to 15% of women in general uh, end up experiencing postpartum depression depression and there are different risk factors for that. Um, and then I guess in terms of, of um, regarding like indigenous health, there, you know, depression and people who have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, who are having babies as well, and kind of how that affects them. Um, the majority of my practice in terms of indigenous mental health would be, I see a lot of people with uh, postpartum depression, um, not postpartum depression, sorry, post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as mood disorders, um, attachment issues, which affect um, how they cope and, um, and are stemming from childhood trauma as well, and affect even how they relate with others. So those are kind of the majority. So just to kind of follow up to that, uh, so how do these kind of mental health issues in the Indigenous community during the perineal period, but also afterwards affect a child? Well, we know that if women are depressed and, and they have a baby, that it affects the attachment. So the children are more at risk of having different behavioral issues into childhood and adolescence. Um, and it's mostly the attachment. If you're not able to be there and be present for your child because you're going through a lot of whatever you're going through and emotional distress, um, then it affects the attachment, right? And then, you know, we're still learning and still growing knowledge on how that might even affect um, their, their mental health as they're older and, and even how they do in school. You know, there's some evidence that it might even affect their, you know, IQ, those types of things. Of course. Okay. So um, another question we had was, why are women um, specifically maybe in the perinatal period at a higher risk for having uh, mental health problems? And why the Indigenous community or various Indigenous communities specifically? So there's a couple of things we've talked about. We've talked about the, I mean, the, the female body goes through so much during pregnancy and after childhood, uh, after childbirth, like in, in a short amount of time, really. So there's a lot of physiologic changes, a lot of hormonal changes that are going on in that period of time. Um, and then, and then there's extra, you know, especially if, you know, you're a first time mom or you're adding another child to the household, there's increased responsibilities. Maybe the child isn't soothing very well as well. Maybe that, maybe you carry some core concepts that you're not good enough or worthy enough. And then that affects even how you're, you know, how you're taking on all of these things, things, especially if baby's not soothing well and, so there's lots of different factors that impact um, impact that that part of I forget exactly what your question was, but and then the other side of it is, you know, when we're looking at Indigenous mental health, a lot of the work that I'm doing is, you know, I'm seeing how important it is to understand the intergenerational effects of trauma, 
and how those things are passed down and, and, and the remnants of residential schools that are still present in our communities, even in the way that we are parenting, in the way that we are loving ourselves or not loving ourselves. So these, con- these self-concepts, I go back to self-concept a lot and, and even internalized oppression. Like if, if the system or these systems were in place to make you feel ashamed of who you are, you know, what, what impact does that have even on how, you know, how you feel as a human being and how you parent as well, how available you are to be a parent. And then on top of that, you know, if you were abused and you didn't have any proper modeling of what it was to be a parent, right? So that, that is very crucial and affects this time period, especially, you know, for women, but for all Indigenous people when they're, you know, being parents or new parents or just parents in general, but especially like if you're a female and you're going through that and there's a lot more um, issues around social determinants of health too, where there's disparities across the board for Indigenous peoples. Um, and so they're, you know, they're, women are more likely to maybe be single mothers as well, or mothers that are struggling so, uh, with uh, socioeconomic status, those types of things, which just add on to these struggles, right, and, and put the mothers at more risk as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so just to kind of carry on this conversation too. So do you think that mental health issues in the various Indigenous communities have become worse over time or have they kind of remained the same? To your knowledge, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I certainly see, I certainly see how the, I, I see the presence of the intergenerational trauma that's been passed down, right? And I see the presence and it's very much alive and it, and it depends in some families you know, have been doing some healing along the way and continue to heal and we're moving forward. And, and, um, and there are things that are still the same after many years, right? And it all depends on community resources of that community as well. Um, different, there's so much that goes into it, you know, what social determinants of health did you have access to, or didn't you have access to, you know, um, did you have supportive people in your life? Did you have people that were able to model for you, you know, love and, and support and respect? Um, so it, it really varies. And I do, you know, I am seeing a lot of healing being done and I'm seeing a lot of healing in our youth as well. And, you know, and a lot of evolution and they're finding the way and they're, you know, they're being vocal about things and, you know, they're proud to be who they are. Whereas there was a generation like my mom's generation was at least, you know, maybe not everybody in that generation, obviously, but there was a fair amount that were really ashamed of being native, you know? And so now we're seeing this pride come back and this cultural revitalization, which is really, uh, it gives me a lot of hope and it gives me a lot of hope on the future. And I strongly believe that as we heal as indigenous people, we're also healing our ancestors trauma and we lead for a better future for, for our future generations as well. So just uh, to the comment that you said, um, does that start like when they're youth, does it start like way earlier on in their childhood or do they experience that more like in their late teens? Like Kind of something that, so, you know, and again, I think the, the percentage and the quantity of that is less and less with time, you know, and, but it very much is a resident, like 
it is residual from residential schools where you're basically taught to be ashamed of who you are and you're, you know, you're not allowed to speak your language. You have to cut your hair right away. All of these things, you're not allowed to practice your culture, everything. And, and, and then on top of that abuses and that type that happened in those schools, then you have the 60 scoop where you have kids that are being afraid that they're going to be taken from their homes. You know, one in three kids were apprehended in a matter of a decade um, and taken from their home and taught, you know, no, you don't need to learn about your culture or anything like that. You're going to assimilate into this new culture that you're adopted into. And so the remnants of that are very much present, you know, and we think that there are certain residential schools that were open until 1996. And, you know, so it wasn't so long ago. It's not that long ago that these things were happening either. And so... And, and they started happening a long time ago, you know, they started happening probably, I think, the 1850s, you know, so we have that where there's this history. And then if you're in those kind of settings, or you're learning to be ashamed of yourself, you know, there's a degree that is kind of passed on through through the generations, right? Um, and, and I would say that in my experience that I'm that more people are, are proud to be Indigenous than not. Um, but it still does occur. And I still see people who are ashamed or maybe ashamed that they have, they don't have the connections to their traditional knowledges, their language, and don't know how to even ask or how to get started. And they identify this certain way, but there's, you know, there might be shame associated with not knowing enough either. All right. So let's just uh, switch gears a little bit. So, um, do you think the Canadian government, uh, have they made like any attempts to better the mental health of the Indigenous population? Well, there was lots of calls to action. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Council, which, you know, really started after the public apology by Prime Minister, by then Prime Minister Stephen Harper in 2008, kind of, you know, that was the start of change. And, and I know that that was a big monumental time, especially hearing the prime minister actually apologize for these things that have happened through in Canada's history. Um, and we are seeing changes. And I think the TRC and the calls to action, we're seeing changes at the university level, like even within McMaster university, and there's now an indigenous um, um, associate Dean who's working in terms of like indigenous health initiatives as well. Um, and so, and getting, you know, even Indigenous knowledge accepted and um, validated by the university is huge, right? And so there's lots of changes that are happening and, you know, more and more research, more and more interest. I mean, there has been interest for a while, like we look over even in the past 30 years, you can look, there's a huge body of research that even looks at, you know, mental health, intergenerational trauma, all of these things. But I think there's a little bit more momentum now, you know, we're increasing cultural sensitivity and safety training too, which kind of causes some changes as well going forward. And there's a way to do that safe as well. And I I think that it's a start. It's, it's a start and there's definitely more to be done. And and it's beyond just looking at, okay, what's, what's the mental health? Well, what is contributing to is mental health disparities. What is contributing to the higher burden of mental illness among Indigenous populations? Looking at those factors, if you don't have clean access to clean water, if you don't have access to adequate housing, if you don't have access to proper like food security, all of these things, how does that affect your mental health? 
you know, what, what is that saying? What is, what is that even, what is the, the government even saying, you know, in a way by not attending to some of these issues? So, and, and how does that infect your self-concept if you're living in these communities where you don't have access to some of these basic human needs, right? So, and those, you know, not, and I want to make sure that my point here too, isn't that, you know, not all reserves are living in poverty or living in these kind of things, but they, there are socioeconomic issues for Indigenous people that are way more of a burden than for non-Indigenous peoples. And there are, you know, other things and, and there are, the more remote you are, the less opportunity, the less resources you have. And the fact that there isn't clean water on every reserve is a problem in a first world country, I think. For sure, yeah. Um, yeah, Indigenous water issues was a huge project. Um, me and like another one of my group mates took on last year. Uh, we created a public policy. Um, we had to do a full policy brief. It was over, there was so many pages about um, how to tackle Indigenous water issues. And the more we researched, the more complicated it became and realized how difficult it is, especially with the remote communities. It's it's quite a big task for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Prime Minister has, you know, committed to um to you know making sure that there's clean water in in pretty much every indigenous community and i hope that is the case and i hope that you know that that happens and and in a timely fashion yeah for sure it's a basic human right like it it should be done quickly um just to kind of talk about the other side of i guess indigenous mental health um so one of the articles or research papers that we were looking at they highlighted how the indigenous population may have greater resilience because of their cultural teachings and connectedness to the traditional lands and that in turn can actually decrease uh the prevalence of mental health problems especially they found in communities outside of canada Could you shed some light on how these cultural practices could maybe help against mental health issues? I kind of go back to self-concept here too, in in part, and and there's a couple of things to it. And I don't think that there's one answer or any answer. We've been like in the research and in the social science research and, and, you know, that for years we've been talking about how important cultural identity is in terms of resilience and a factor to resilience. What that means for the individual could vary, right? But certainly you can see if, if you're, you know, if you're kind of ashamed of who you are or if you're kind of feeling really stuck between two worlds and not knowing how to navigate that, you know, there, but we do know that the, that cultural identity and and how strongly you identify that that has has positive outcomes it means a little bit different for everyone and cultural practices I think that tie you closer to cultural identity give you different ways of healing different ways of coping because we had our ways of healing we had our ways of coping we had our ways of giving thanks and prayer and ceremony and all of these things and, you know, and understanding. And it also, there's, with that, there is this idea of connectedness, 
and interrelatedness and how we connect to one another, how we connect to environment. And you can imagine if you feel like you have no purpose and you're depressed, if you actually feel like you're connected to one another now all of a sudden and connected to every living being on this earth that you have now purpose and connection. And there's something very strong and, and about that and very supportive about that. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a pride that comes from being able to learn, like, for instance, my, my family, you know, it it was fearful, like, my, my great grandparents protected my grandma and my grandpa by not teaching them the languages by not teaching them Mohawk, because they were really concerned that they would be taken that they would be stolen you know, and so they were trying to protect them in different ways. And so then, you know, then their kids didn't learn. And then, you know, here we are, we haven't learned our language either. And we're, and the more you kind of get connected back to that, it it is this healing process. And I think it's also healing, you know, and it makes me very proud. And it makes me very happy to know that we are staying connected and getting more connected, especially when our ancestors have been through so much, right? Um, so I think that there's so much to that question and so many layers to it and so many different factors. But And that being said, you know, we do have to be careful when we're doing cultural sensitivity and safety training to the, the point of them, you know, and I've been thinking about this a lot because I've had more and more patients coming up to me saying, you know, just that they're being treated differently almost as a result of it in terms of like all of a sudden it's, you know, like the question that you just asked, they're going to see somebody say for an illness or, you know, mental illness or a therapist. And then the therapist is saying to them, well, you know, have you learned, have you learned how to speak Mohawk? Have you went to Longhouse? But to them, that's not related to why they're there. They're there for their expertise in healing, say trauma or, different things. So we have to be careful, right? At the end of the day, these cultural sensitivity and safety trainings, this is kind of an aside, but they show us the disparities and how there is an equitable treatment. But at the same time, we're all individuals at the end of the day. And, and, and it's this idea of, okay, there are subconscious biases, there are things that need to be dismantled. And, you know, there are system changes that do need to happen. Um, you know, so, but I just, that's one of my things, because as we're talking about cultural identity as well, I want to make it clear that there's such a diversity of beliefs among Indigenous peoples as well. And, um, and so it is good to know that it is good to know that and that is going to come from that individual and on their own journey, right? But we can know these things. But if you don't know anything about Mohawk culture, for instance, or Mohawk language, then it might not be the best avenue to, you know, if you're not Mohawk to, and you don't know anything about that, and, you know, just having a sense overall that cultural identity is important and can be a strength. And, and, and if we have more programs and opportunities for kids and youth and adults to be able to have more land-based teachings and that, I think that those things are very important for mental health outcomes. Um, and I just, I kind of went on a tangent there because I also want to make sure that, that there is this idea that there's so much diversity as well. Yeah. No, that's, that's perfect because I was actually going to ask you as an Indigenous doctor, what kind of advice do you have for 
other doctors or healthcare professionals um, with combating these issues in the indigenous population. And mm -hmm. you touched on cultural sensitivity, but um, any other advice in general? Yeah, I, coming with, I, I like the term cultural humility a lot. And I think cultural safety and sensitivity at the, at the, the root of it, it has to be cultural humility. So you may not know everything, you may not know kind of certain things. And I've certainly had lots of questions being like, well, I'm afraid to ask these questions because I don't know much about this. But even by just acknowledging, hey, I don't know. And here is my question. And if it feels like it's important for what you're doing with that patient, if it feels like it's important, you know, it, it, it may not be the time to ask random questions about their culture when they're there for, you know, a cancer checkup or something, you know, but if it's relevant and important and coming with humility, it, that, that it's, you know, paramount. And the other reason why the humility and coming with humility and understanding that we we are not always the experts, you know, and coming with that mentality and open-mindedness is really important, especially when there is, there is systemic racism in healthcare systems. You know, we know that we've seen stories, we've seen it across the board for, you know, not just indigenous people, but other, uh, other cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds as well. And we know what happens and it happens. And the fact that it happens is a problem. You know, even if it's only happening here and there, it, the fact that it even happens is an issue, right? So, um, so coming with that and understanding that sometimes your patients actually have to mentally prepare themselves to even come to your office because they're preparing for potential stigma, preparing for potential discrimination. And so, you know, when you come from a place of openness and humility, you make that space more comfortable for them to be and, and for them, you know, to feel like, okay, when there's not these huge power deferentials and that and, and so, you know, it's all in, in, in the attitudes and, and, and just, you know, your approach and empathy, you know, coming with an open, you know, an open mind and open heart. And I know in, in medical practice, we, we tend to have this kind of, you know, almost like this, this artificial wall in a way, you know, because we're seeing so many people and that type of thing, but we're humans at the end of the day, you know. Um, so coming with cultural humility, understanding that we may not always be the experts um, and being um, open that way. And then the other thing is just being aware, being aware of some of the issues that might affect practice, like it might affect how safe individuals feel in your office, right? And based on these, this socio-historical context as well, like, you know, if you're even doing researches, there was such a thing as Indian hospitals where, you know, people were, they, they were underfunded and mistreated. And, you know, that, that lives on too, that, you know, that maybe potential healthcare mistrust. Now it's, it's getting less and less as time goes on, but it still might be there. And, it, and people might've had different experiences. Like I, I had a, a patient who has a very deformed clavicle. And when he went to get it checked out, he was told, oh, well, you, you were never going to be a baseball player anyways. And they didn't properly check it out. And so he's lived years with this very deformed, it had been broken as well. And so, you know, understanding that these things have happened and they do happen. And unfortunately, even in this day and age, they're happening, which is unacceptable and, and how that might impact how so comfortable somebody feels going for for their, their checkups or, you know, those types of things and doing the cultural sensitivity and safety training, well understanding 
that you're doing this to be able to provide equitable care, right? And that it is at the end of the day, we're all individuals. What could be done to help this, uh, the indigenous community, you know, like on a community level, on a, like, you know, friend to friend basis, maybe even on a school level, right? What can, what can, what can be done to help these communities or like what, what's available, what should be created? Things along those lines. Yeah, and I mean, there's so much that goes into this question too, right? And so many different opinions as well. And so much that, you know, is being taken up and, um, and there isn't a one size fits all, but certainly more programming for youth. I think would be very important having more like activities for them, like, you know, even, even stadiums and things where, you know, you can play sports and you can do things or even, you know, dance classes or different things to encourage art because art, art and creativity, I think are very healing. And there's something that I try and get people, my patients to even tap into as, a, as an outlet for emotion, right? And if you've got a lot of emotion in you, then thinking about programs and structures and systems where, they can provide some outlets for that, you know, and then land-based cultural teachings, I think are very important. And we're going to see more and more of them, especially right now with a lot of the schools, you know, a lot of reserve schools are still closed and there's different, uh, and then some reserves are doing more land-based teaching right now so that they're outside, you know, during the pandemic. So I think all of those things are really good. Again, are, are, you know, what are the social determinants of health of a certain community and do they have their basic human rights and their basic human needs as well, you know, first and foremost. And, um, and just thinking about, you know, just there's so many different programs that you could do, but I think especially focusing on activities for the youth and so that they can build their confidence and feel strong and give way for healthier and uh, generations going forward are really important. And, and programs need to be built in a way that is looking at multiple factors of society. So, you know, yes, there might be individual programs and then there are family programs and then there are community programs and then there are organizational programs and, you know, government programs, like all of these things where it's kind of, it builds upon where we're looking at the different layers as well to well-being, and then in, in ones that are also approached in a holistic way. Okay. What, what, what do the people need for their emotional health, mental health, physical health, spiritual health, you know, and that's the lens that a lot of programs I think should be looking through in order to build, you know, programs that are going to make meaningful change and impact for the future generations and beyond. 100%. But, the, but the youth need more, they need more, they need more to be healthy. They need more to be strong. They need more outlets, you know, and in some communities, they literally have nothing, you know, and the schools that they're going to are underfunded and, you know, have issues like, you know, it doesn't, and I don't want this to be generalized to all reserve communities because then we have six nations, which is 10 minutes from the border of Hamilton, who has different opportunities and who has different resources and many different schools and that, but there are still issues there. Right. And so, but when you're looking at kind of these extreme examples and in these examples, you know, we hear a lot about the North and the remote communities, but some of the kids, they don't have anything, you know, and what does that say? You know, how are we showing them, you know, that they're cared for and that, you know, that they matter, right? And, and then that links a lot to, you know, we see so such high numbers of youth suicide, mm-hmm. especially in the north and these remote areas. And so, and it's devastating. 
and it starts with the youth, right? At the end of the day, these are the individuals that end up becoming working members of society. Yeah. So it starts with the youth. They're the ones who are a future. And then on top of that, they're going to have kids one day. And then the way they feel with their mental health, that affects the kid too. Absolutely. I was just going to link it to that cycle because here we are. But again, we can go back to even perinatal health as well. Like if that's what you've grown up in and now you're having kids and like, and you're already struggling with your own self-concept, internalized depression, mental health, like all of these things, you can see now how there are intergenerational effects of trauma, right? Because then you now are taking care of this baby and you're doing the best you can right? With the mental resources that you have and with the resources that you have in general, but you're already coming at a place where it's not equitable. It's not, you know, you're already coming at a disparity and you're already coming at a place where maybe, you know, you're not feeling so good about yourself. So can you can imagine how, how that is then when you're raising a child and then you're still healing from your own trauma and different things. And so then that comes out even in the way that you're parenting, right? And the kids, kids, take on so much too, right? They, they feel everything and they start to think that it's their fault. So then that keeps going. So there's that cycle that kind of keeps going through the generations. So that's the cycle that we need to break, you know? For sure. Yep. Um, yep. So uh, thank you so much, Dr. Johnson, for joining us today and sharing your extensive knowledge on the subject. And before you go, would you like um, what one thing would you like the audience to take away from this discussion? We've talked about so much, right? We've talked about so much and, and I just, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what the kind of one thing is, but, you know, just, just practicing whatever you're doing and whatever work you're doing, you know, being open-minded, learning about the communities that you're serving as well and the people that you're serving and understand that everybody looks through a different lens and carries different traumas and, and some are deeper than others. And just kind of having that understanding as you go forward and really being able to look at this, this spectrum of oppression and privilege and even dissecting our, our own uh, privilege and 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 our own oppression as well, and, and being able to kind of look at that and reflect on that, and have a self reflection practice is very very important, and that is what's going to help manifest that cultural humility, which will allow you to move forward in a good way in a good mind. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That concludes our discussion for today. We want to thank all of our listeners for joining us on our journey to learn more about health in Canada and the issues that matter to you. Thank you.